Welcome to the Three Lines of Defence podcast, the show that provides in-depth discussion into the world of audit, compliance and risk. We bring valuable insights, market information and career advice from industry leaders. Here's your host, Mark Enticott. On today's show, we have Julian Hegarty, who is the General Manager, Governance and Oversight at Challenger Limited. Julian immigrated to Australia in 1990 and worked as a life insurance agent. In 1992, Julian joined AMP as a retirement and product advisor. In 1995, she joined Financial Wisdom, which was a subsidiary of Prudential. Colonial purchased Prudential in 1998, and in 2000, CBA purchased Prudential. It was at this time that Julian was made head of compliance across all bank and non-bank third-party advisors. In 2004, Julian joined Challenger as head of compliance funds management and progressed to group head of operational risk and compliance. Julian is now GM, Governance and Oversight. Julian, welcome to the show. Thanks very much, Mark. I'd like to start a little bit with your early life and if you can give us a bit more information about where you grew up. Sure. Um, Well, in fact, um, despite the accent, I was actually born in Australia. My parents came out here in the 1960s, um, partly, I think, as a way of having a somewhat more exotic honeymoon, both of them originally from Scotland, and also because Dad at the time was um, ready to expand and start his career and was uh, is a chemist and so was um, engaged to do some research at Sydney Uni and also lecture there. So during the three years that they were here, I was actually born and then at the end of their stint here, I guess at that time, transport was a little bit different than we experience it today. And so they made the decision to actually return back to uh, the UK. And of course, as an 18-month-old, I went with them. So I then spent, you know, my growing up years in the northwest of England with lots of, um, you know, fun family adventures in terms of holidays in the UK and Europe. I guess north of Scotland was a regular destination because grandparents were all located there. I'm the eldest child, two siblings, and, you know, a pretty traditional family uh, life and easy, fun childhood. I was always engaged in lots of sports and outdoors. And personally, I was quite mad on horses, but uh, came from a very, very much a non-equestrian household. And I'll probably return to that uh, as as we go through the podcast. Okay. And so you've worked in a range of different roles throughout your career. How did you, what made you go into the banking financial services sector and and what made you develop your career within compliance and risk? Yeah, I think, um, you know, my journey is perhaps a little bit different from many who are um, in similar positions to myself at the time, having not come via law audit or any other sort of recognized risk management disciplines like credit or market risk. I think, you know, I found my way a little bit by accident. And again, I think that's similar to uh, many who are in the profession today. I don't think um, I deliberately set out to have a compliance and risk management career and certainly not necessarily in financial services. Perhaps that'll be different for the next generation into the future and it will be a deliberate career choice. I think though when I emigrated to Australia, I did make a deliberate decision that I wanted to do something different. I In the UK, I was a teacher. I taught in secondary schools, I taught uh, physical education, the sporting piece coming into play, and also mathematics. And I think at the time, I sort of had it in my head that arriving uh, in Australia, I, you know, could always return to teaching in the future, but I wanted to do something different. 
And in the UK, it actually tried to break out and get into some graduate programs. But I think at the time in 1990, in the UK, you were very much sort of pigeonholed. But I found, you know, when I arrived in Australia, people were willing to look beyond and look at the fact that you had a degree. And, you know, perhaps there were other things you could turn your skills and talents to. I'd certainly observed my dad's career as um, uh, and success as an industrial chemist and, you know, watched him and, and heard from him about working on lots of different projects with diverse teams. And, you know, he also worked in research and ultimately brought, you know, sort of, I think it was Unilever and so brought products to individuals. And there was an emphasis very much on standards and process. And I remember sort of talking to him about this and about ISO standards and, and those sorts of things. And also that there was a particular example when uh, he was particularly stressed through work as a result of they'd uh, introduced a new ingredient into one of the soap powder brands and it had started to effectively eat the clothes. And so that was, a, a you know, if you like, a little bit of a, a disaster and a risk that they needed to, to manage at the time. So when I arrived in Australia, I actually answered an advert. It's going to sound very bizarre, but it, it, the advert said, are you interested in talking to people? Do you want to make some money? And uh, are you sort of optimistic? And I thought, well, yeah, I can pretty much answer all of those in the affirmative. And so I found myself, you know, starting to learn about financial services and the industry um, as a frontline salesperson, as a life insurance agent, sort of securities representative. And so the journey that I had from there really enabled me to have the chance to understand the whole value chain for financial services and gain a perspective really from many different stakeholders' point of view. The challenges of running your own small business, interacting face-to-face with retail clients. And really from then on, it was all about taking opportunities when they were offered and I think pretty much being very resilient during times of change. And, you know, my next role after I decided that um, frontline sales wasn't necessary, necessarily absolutely for me was um, I was given an opportunity at AMP to be uh, a technical uh, specialist in retirement and superannuation. And uh, again, at that point in time, had a lot, a lot, a lot of learning to do, but, but was given a different exposure and exposure as part of the sales support team and the technical support team. You know, and learning from that point on about the industry really led me to the opportunity to uh, think about roles that were different. And I guess the other thing at that time, as you've already mentioned in the background, there was a lot of industry change and industry consolidation. And, um, you know, compliance was really an emerging, an emerging discipline. It wasn't really something that people sort of put their hands up and said they wanted to be part of. But uh, the opportunity came and I was given a choice. You know, my teaching background meant that early in my career, I'd done a lot of training. And so um, I was given the choice, would you like to head up this new team called uh, uh, Compliance or would you like to take the opportunity to do the uh, the training role? And fortunately for me, I say now, uh, looking back, I, I chose to take the Compliance role. I felt it would be something new, something different, something that I could um make my mark in and uh, the rest as they say is kind of history absolutely fascinating your journey on that path so was there a particular mentor for you that or mentors that uh was significant in developing your career i think um 
I'm not sure I would say, um, based on what I know now, that I necessarily had a formal mentor, but um, I had uh, very many examples of individuals who definitely had a strong influence and from whom, um, you know, I was able to learn. I think learning has always been incredibly important to me um, in terms of work or personally or, you know, in terms of sports and hobbies. I've always wanted to know more about and understand why and how um, things work. So in terms of um, thinking about mentors, you know, I've had a lot of managers uh, during my career and each one of them um, had a unique style. Um, I've had those um, for whom <laughs> you kind of had to learn that you'd done an extraordinary job if you were able to manage to um, predict and answer at least 80% of the questions that they posed to you when they reviewed a piece of work or you needed a decision from them. Um, to others who would, you know, uh, simply when you were seeking a decision um, around uh, an initiative or a piece of work, they would simply turn it 180 degrees right back at you and um and, and therefore, the need to learn to formulate and present well-founded and considered recommendations rather than simply seek direction became sort of a key skill. Um, I've also, I think, over my career been fortunate to uh, be given the opportunity to attend and present at numerous um, executive forums, boards and committees and really take the time to observe how others um, go about getting things done, ways they're able to direct the conversation or decision-making or ask questions um, that create that pregnant pause moment. And, um, you know, uh, by being, I, I don't know, simply um, objectively and subtly contrarian um, in in their approach. And I think it's, it's, it's watching and observing uh, that um, that, that um, enables you to sort of uh, take the learning from all those uh, individuals who've all been, um, you know, incredi incredibly successful in their own right, um, has, has been about has been about how I've gone about sort of developing my skills. And I'd say there's also been times when I've observed the wrong way to do things, and um, sort of taking those learnings are equally um, important. I think. Has there been a significant turning point in your career? Um. There's a, there's a few. Um, I think um, if I give, give you a couple of examples, I think, um, you know, early uh, in my career, um, gaining an appreciation and understanding of, you know, the levels of financial literacy that exist in uh, the community has been something that's really important um, for me. You know, managing that challenge around um, regulatory disclosure obligations um, with actually uh, trying to balance that with giving a customers a chance to understand <laughs> what's being sent or provided to them is something I've always tried to be very mindful of. I think um, I remember distinctly hearing a speech actually by Peter Kell, um, who uh, was part of the of ASIC at the time at a forum event, and it was many, many years ago. Um, and I thought it was incredibly clever. It was um, he gave a speech whereby he sort of told of Martians landing in Australia and trying to comprehend the financial services disclosure regime regulations. And it sort of really resonated um, with me. I think you know we're an industry full of acronyms and uh, almost a, a, a separate language. And uh, that's sort of been um, uh, startly put back to us um, in uh, you know events like the recent uh, Royal Commission. And I remember at the time distinctly that there was a, a statistic that was articulated, and I think it was something like, um, you know, 50% of the population cannot calculate 50% of a given number. And, you know, I think that that's, um, 
you know, something uh, that, that we just all need to um, uh, keep front of mind when we're trying to achieve the outcomes and objectives of the businesses that we work in, um, particularly when you think about, um, you know, customer and customer outcomes. And I think, again, at my age and stage, you have conversations um, with friends um, outside of uh, work. And, uh, you know, people are keenly interested to understand a little bit more about superannuation and and it, and, and um, the various um, options in, in retirement. And, and it's, it's, it's horribly complex for a lot of people. And a lot of people who are very successful in their own careers, um, they're just not part of financial services. So um, being able to interact with industry um, is a real challenge for them. And I think when you have those conversations, whether it's around the barbecue or it's, or it's with your friends, it starts to make you really think about um, what you're then doing in your, in your day-to-day role um, in, in, in terms of being part of a, a function within a financial services firm. Another one, I guess, um, it, you know, is, um, you know, being given opportunities to do things like implement, uh, you know, new software um, to um, manage non-financial risk. So, you know, being given the budget, being given the opportunity to select the provider, having to think about um, what the system's actually going to do um, for your own team and for the broader organization. Um, you know, there's been a lot said um, and written and uh, talked about in terms of uh, the management of non-financial risk and how you integrate that system and how you get time from executives um, from across the organization um, when you're competing for their time with, you know, HR systems, finance systems, performance management systems, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, having a clear strategy around um, implementing a system and, um, you know, being able to observe and watch um, how that how that's um, delivered its um, objectives, I think, was a, a project that you know I've, I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed um, sponsoring and uh, and absolutely being part of. Um, one other thing I will um, just mention uh, is just in terms of being a key turning point. Um, you know, I I guess it came to a point in my career when I realised I I actually needed to. Um, to ask uh, more, and um, you know that it wouldn't um, wouldn't all just come to you because of either what you did or um, that you actually needed at times to to to, to point out um, that perhaps now was the time for you to be part, say for example, of uh, the executive management team. Um, you know the compliance function and and having that voice um, was something that um, I think you know earlier in my career was um, was a challenge. Uh, not so much these days. Um, but so, for example, having the um, I suppose the grit and confidence to to ask the question, and then you know finding that um, actually people just didn't, hadn't realised um, that I wasn't part of it, uh, part of that executive team. You know, they when when asked um, the leadership team of the organisation that I was a part of at the time, sort of said. What do you mean? <laughs> um, the head of compliance is not part of the executive uh, executive management team, and and it was quickly rectified. But you know, you can um, there are opportunities that you need to um, be mindful of and and to take when when uh, you know and and sometimes to ask for. So they've been sort of turning points and um, sort of some uh, career highlights along the way. When you look at your career, I'm sure there's been plenty of challenges throughout that career. Is there one significant challenge that stands out and how did you overcome it? Yeah, I mean, um, there's, there's, there's many, many, but mm-hmm. I guess um, 
early on in my career, I had to work through some material fraud events. Um, and I think, you know, they, again, give you um, a depth of experience um, because you're managing so many different stakeholders. Um, you know, the impacted customers and hearing their stories and visiting them at their homes, um, the regulator, um, the insurer, the PI insurer. Um, obviously, there were uh, significant internal executive stakeholders involved and engaged. Um, there were other um, financial institutions who'd also been impacted by the fraud, um, the boards of the relevant entities, and then ultimately, actually, um, the particular um, uh, one of the particular matters um, ended up in court, and so sort of having to appear um, uh, in court on behalf of the regulated entity was. Um, you know, an extraordinarily daunting um, task and, um, and one of those experiences that I think I can reflect on now and, um, uh, you know, and, and, and definitely learn from. Um, I think in all, in all of those, um, you know, times, you know, really trying to work hard on understanding the different agendas and desired outcomes from all, the involve, all those who were involved um, you know, agreeing a, a process that would work for everybody, but also keep the customer impact and outcome at the center of the conversation was, was, was something that became really important because, um, you know, it wasn't going to work that every individual uh, case in this, in this instance um, would go through um, a sign-off process. Um, anybody who's ever dealt with one of these things and had to and sort of uh, bring the insurer to the table and bring the <laughs> and keep the regulator happy and also keep the um, the internal organisation executives um, abreast of what was going on um, would would understand the complexity um, that that was involved in that um, and so I think you know one of the things that stood me in good stead over the years has been um, that throughout my career I've really often asked people to apply the mum test as I call it. Um, which is sort of, I say to people, well, how would you feel about this if the person that, you know, was being impacted here or, or this was the, the person who had to deal with this process was actually your mum or some other significant person in your life? And I think, you know, again, that's, that's a way of making, making it real for people and, um, you know, challenging people to, to, to think about the impact um, on, on others of, um, you know, whether you're implementing a new control or, um, articulating um, an element of your compliance plan, um, you have to think about how it's how it's going to to work in in real life and and who it's going to impact and what the outcomes you're driving for um, are, are, are actually um, uh, you know whether they're actually going to be um, be achieved. Throughout your career, you've managed and led different sized teams. What do you see as the key attributes of an effective leader? Um. I think somebody who will listen um, and support you as an individual to develop your career is really important. Um, someone who um, will encourage you and provide you with challenges and constructive feedback. Um, and also for me, um, something that's really important is somebody who'll take the time to get to know you uh, as an individual and not just, um, you know, see you as your work self. Um, you know, and I think, as I've said before, you know, learning um, something that's really important to me. So somebody that I can learn from um, in a leadership sense has, has always been um, important to me. So not necessarily the technical stuff, because I think 
you know, there's a lot to be said for experience in terms of the technical stuff. The technical landscape, the regulatory landscape is constantly changing. And so you have to keep up to date and keep abreast of that. That's almost a given. But people um, or leaders that you can uh, learn from in terms of how they go about communicating, how they manage themselves around the organization, how they approach problems, how they go about driving outcomes and managing stakeholders, um, and how they dealt with um, stress um, as it impacted them from time to time, I think were all of the, you know, the sort of um, attributes I was looking for in an effective uh, leader for me, and also that I've tried to um, embody in terms of being a, a leader to uh, to others. It's really interesting the two points that you mentioned there in terms of one listening and the second being the the challenge piece. And this is a constant theme that keeps coming through in the podcast because this is a question that I ask everyone that I sit down and 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 do the podcast with and it's very it's a common theme that just keeps coming through of a key leadership attributes are one listening and two the the ability to be able to challenge in the right forums. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, and I think um, empowering people and, you know, giving them the opportunity to um, make their own way, um, you know, the way that you challenge or the way that you provide feedback is, you know, um, I think, you know, being good at asking open-ended questions, you know, what else have you thought about? What other options have you considered um, uh, to, to to create the conversation and, and create the self-learning for the individual uh, techniques, I think, that you, you learn um, and... Uh, and hopefully are reinforced um, over your career. You know, if you're in an organisation that um, you know that is uh, serious about providing development, um, then uh, you know, you, as an individual, you, you you take every opportunity you can to. Um, and some things will resonate, some things um, will not. Um, but you 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 have to to look for the learning in the opportunities that that, that you're given to develop yourself and develop your team. What do you look for when you're hiring for your team? Um. It's a good question. Um, you know, I work in an organization where less than a thousand um, individuals. And so um, one of the things that I've, um, you know, observed over my career has been that it is um, somewhat difficult to find people who are, um, you know, are willing to um, deal with, if you like, ambiguity and, and take the opportunity for a broad range of experiences. Um, you know, the larger organizations have many, many, many more teams and resources. And so, um, you know, some individuals don't do well when they're asked to um, sort of do their own planning or take the, take the initiative. Um, uh, others, others thrive much better. So I think I always look for, for people who, um, you know, are going to be, um, uh, who are going to manage um, change, who are, um, who are self-starters. Um, you know, we don't have, many um, uh, junior roles in our teams and so they've got to have um, you know a certain level of experience but that's kind of almost um, the given in terms of the recruitment process that you go through and then the other thing is you you, you know you you know your own strengths and you know the areas you need um, support in so um, uh, and and you look for that that diversity um, uh, diversity of their experiences and sometimes we've had to look also out the box and you don't you can't necessarily find the experience you want so you sort of say well we we can teach the on the job stuff so it's actually the attitude um, 
of, of the individual and the style of the individual that's more important than necessarily their, their technical work experience because the technical work experience we can teach um, as, as, uh, you know, from the broader depth that, that exists within the team. So, um, so yes, it's attitude and approach and the way that they're going to uh, interact, the way they're going to mean that, you know, um, stakeholders across the business get a good experience from your team <laughs> is really important. Um, uh, so so they've, they've got to have the in- ability to interact at all levels of the organization um, positively and effectively. If you're going to restart your career, what would be one piece of advice that you would give to a younger version of yourself? Hmm, that's a really uh, good question. Um, I guess uh, take every opportunity, um, read widely, um, observe and sort of research trends that um, you can see from other jurisdictions in terms of uh, developments. Um, uh, look at opportunities, particularly now, to learn much more about technology and human behavior. Um, I think personally for me, and this um, may resonate with some others, one of the things is um, learning to, to uh, moderate and control your own self-talk um, and balance it with the feedback that you receive from others who are observing the contribution that you're making. Um, I don't think, you know, I think there are uh, many individuals and perhaps particularly females whose um, own uh, self-talk can be somewhat um, negative. <laughs> um, and, um, and, and, and you know, you really need to find a way to balance that with the, the feedback that you're, you're otherwise uh, getting from um, trusted um, colleagues um, and uh, respected um, leaders uh, in your organization. Um, and the, I mean, another one for me with the particular, with the profession is really, um, uh, making sure that there's clarity around what you're doing and what, um, what the impact's going to be on your various stakeholder groups. It continues to disappoint me, I guess, when I come across or become aware of a request from, a, you know, from someone in the, with a risk and compliance sort of, um, flavor to it that seems to be, you know, nothing more than a tick box exercise. And, you know, there isn't clarity around what value it will add or um, that the requestor has actually thought through what um, what completion of that task will actually um, deliver in terms of either risk mitigation or customer outcome. So I think, you know, um, that's a challenge um, for, um, you know, some of us in the profession, um, uh, you know, to, to, to remain mindful of the fact that we're part of an organization and, um, you know, we need to continue to provide valued advice and trusted advice and bring something to the table um, to be able to be given the opportunity to actually deliver what our profession can can contribute um, to an organization. So they're, they're the things I suppose I'd, I'd, I'd say to myself if I was starting my career today. How are firms dealing with the level of regulatory change at present and what do you see as the impact on the financial services business post the Banking Royal Commission? Yeah, so it, I mean, it's huge. Um, you know, the 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 pace of regulatory change, um, the you know the sheer volume of uh, change that organisations are being asked to implement, and also the you know just just distilling the impact. On the organisation is 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 a, a huge task. I think coupled with the regulatory change is the 
constant and incremental expectation change. So, it's you know the expectations often are above what the the regulatory requirements are, and I think being mindful of that is is really important. So, I think a real challenge for organisations is what capacity have we got? I think many businesses, you know, we're not just dealing with regulatory change. You know, you're dealing with um, disruption. You're dealing with technology development. And so the business is engaged and active and working on a number of strategic initiatives that, you know, the regulatory change has to go alongside of those business imperatives. So I think, you know, really thinking through, is it your current resources that are going to implement this? Are you going to bring in project resources? If you're going to bring in project resources, have you thought through what the impact on the organization will be once the project resources move on? You know, and sort of trying to balance that, the backfill of the existing resources, because, you know, it's the the permanent resources who are going to deal with whatever is implemented and whatever solution is designed in a longer term sense. So they need to be part of that. But, you know, they've, they've also got the day job. So I think that's a real challenge for organizations. And it's very much also a real challenge for, you know, people in the first line, you know, the accountability models that are being rolled out now mean that, you know, there's a different level of engagement and a different level of sort of skin in the game for a number of people um, uh, going forward. So I think, you know, they're all things that, you know, you need to take time to think through. And I think trying to uh, look at, you know, synergies and trying to sort of deal with the ambiguity aspect of the regulatory change is important. I think it's usually you can get a sense of what the intended outcomes are what the spirit of uh, what what's trying to be achieved is, even if the detail's not there. And sometimes you have to work on that basis and let the details sort of fall into place. Because if you don't get started, you'll never never actually get there by the, the required timeframes that are expected um, in the current environment. So there, I think, some of the, the real challenges. One of the things that you mentioned earlier was looking at what other countries have already done. Does the Ooh. fact that Australia is only really starting to ramp up around compliance compared to the rest of the world that has sort of gone through massive compliance and regulatory change over the last 10 years since post-financial crisis. Is there a better sort of clearer roadmap and, and learning experiences that the Australian financial services businesses can learn from what's happened overseas? Yeah, absolutely. I think there, there's definitely learning to be had, you know, from observing what's happened in in particularly in the European market. But, you know, you can't just take that as a given because, you know, I think um, what I've observed over the years is the the sort of the principles that underpin, and I think, you know, the Royal Commission and uh, Kenneth Haynes sort of put this perfectly. The principles don't change the world over. You know, manage your conflicts, think about what the outcome is for the customers, be fair and reasonable, obey the law, those sorts of things are... Are consistent the world over, and then it's about the localized nuances, which will be, you know, impacted by the maturity of your market. You know, some of the other drivers and levers that exist in your market. I mean, obviously, a big one for us is the compulsion around the superannuation uh, contributions, and so you know, it, whether we like it or not, that pie is is continuing to grow because it's compulsed, and so there are different nuances and different drivers that exist in 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 each market, but certainly. I think, as I said, in terms of, you know, um, what I would say to my myself if I was starting on my career and something I've always tried to do is 
you know, when presented with a, a challenge or taking the time to, you know, go to professional development sessions or read widely, you do have to look for, you know, trends that are occurring overseas and an impact that they've had. You know, the UK was a good blueprint for us, I think, in terms of some of the scandals around, you know, credit card insurance and personal protection insurance and uh, some of the economics there. It, it, it happened there a number of years before it was called out here in the Royal Commission case studies that were um, publicly aired. So, yes, there's definitely learning to take from, from overseas, but you have to be able to distill it and apply it to both, you know, your team, uh, your organisation, and then the broader the broader industry. What skills do you think risk and compliance professionals need now and also going into the future to really, given the, the changes that are taking place in the Australian market from a regulatory point of view? Yeah, so I think, you know, uh, as a risk and compliance professional, you know, you've got to be able to work hand in glove and closely with, you know, other support functions across the organization, particularly uh, like IT, like um, human resources. And so I think, you know, there's going to be more emphasis on people who've got skills and experience around data technology and then the sort of human behavior dynamics. And so, you know, looking at um, a few uh, recent recruits in my team, you know, it's interesting to see what some young uh, risk and compliance professions are choosing to major in or focus on in terms of doing, you know, post-grad learning uh, masters. So, you know, I've got someone in my team at the moment who's doing uh, data science and um, human psychology. And it's, it's like, wow, you know, there's someone I can see is, um, you know, has got a really bright future ahead of them because, you know, the, there's so much now around how do humans behave? How do humans react? How do we influence that? How do we engage? Because, you know, for a lot of financial services firms, yes, they've got IT assets, but a lot of the assets that they have at their disposal in the organization are people. And the people, you know, who they're serving are people. And so sort of understanding uh, understanding that, I think, is uh, a real area that we need to focus on uh, into the future. Data is also important in terms of, you know, communicating in the information through the organization. You know, how quickly does information travel within the organization is something we've all got a, a focus on. So people who understand technology and data, uh, I think, are also places we'll look in the future for people in risk and compliance. And I think I've been involved just recently in some work that's being done uh, in uh, partnership with a couple of organizations, one of them, the AGSM, and it's about reskilling and uh, finding people in organizations who could be risk managers and compliance managers of the future. Because as I've already said, I think you can teach some of the technical aspects of the organization that can be, that can be learned. But, you know, if you've got someone who you know, has got particular skills around communication or around stakeholder management and engagement, that they can certainly be retrained to and become good good risk managers. You know, the pathways into risk management are very diverse and should be. Who would have thought, you know, a chief risk officer, if you were going to say to somebody, if you in the future said, I want to be a chief risk officer, you'd be saying, go and get experience in marketing, go and get experience in the customer contact center, go and deal with some customer complaints, um, you know, go and spend some time in the IT space. Um, you'd want someone who had that um, that diversity of, of understanding and knowledge, um, um, in, in, I think, in a future CRO. 
Data analytics really seems to be a very common theme across the three lines of defence. Again, from from the podcast that we've already done, it's a, a skill that certainly keeps coming up uh, across those three lines. When you, yeah, I think we're all st- we're all still grappling with it. I don't know if anybody's actually nailed it yet. <laughs> yes. In in terms of developing good risk and compliance professionals, what, what do you do there in, in order to assist that? Yeah, so I think, you know, our, our, our model is very much one of experience, exposure, um, education, and then obviously, um, as I said earlier, one of the things that's really important is understanding um, what their goals and, um, um, you know, what, what, what how they see uh, their future um, career uh, panning out. Um, so, uh, in terms of what we do, you know, we, we attend various industry functions. There's um, some um, recognized industry accreditations that we encourage our team, uh, team members to uh, work towards. Um, but I don't, I don't think there's, I think with a, you know, again, with that, there's, there's not one, one um, pathway. Um, there's many different ways that will work for individuals. Some have got more capacity to do um, external external learning um, of others um, it needs to be more on the job and, and, and in the office um, certainly I think uh, you know exposure to um, the the governance model within an organization is 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 something where there's good learning for people at all levels within the um, within the within the team so um, you know exposure to committees boards um, uh, preparing papers, presenting papers, those sorts of things, I think, are, are real opportunities for, for people who are at the earlier part of their career. What's your views on a diversified team? I think it's vital. <laughs> um, you know, uh, I think, again, you know, there's been far more consciousness recently about bias, um, you know, the the value in having a diverse team, someone who thinks differently to you. Um, and, and I think one of the things... We talked about earlier the importance of listening. One of the things also is, um, you know, observing who is saying something and who's not and what the body language is and sometimes, um, you know, encouraging and prompting people um, to, to to make their contribution and make their views known is, is also um, something that, that, you know, that um, leaders need to um, be mindful of. Um, you don't necessarily need to call it out in the... In the in in the meeting, um, that you might you might go and canvas their views later, and then sort of encourage them to put those views forward um, um, or attribute them to them. Um, you know, uh, if it's a, 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 a you know a, a personality driven thing or a confidence thing, or um, yeah. Uh, so so I think diversity is is vital, um, and it's diversity across all you know um, spectrums, whether it's um, gender, whether it's um, you know cultural, whether it's um, age is also really important. I was I was really fortunate in an early part of my career to have somebody who was in their sixties as part of my team, and um, I learned so much from him. He was so patient with me, um, and just quietly sort of guiding uh, guiding uh, me as I was um, being given the challenge of uh, you know managing a large team. Um, he was he was somebody I could always go and chat to and bounce ideas from, and so you know I think um, yeah yeah diversity across. All, all facets is 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 um, is vital if you're going to have a, 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 a you know a, a well functioning and well regarded team. In the senior leadership positions you've held, how have you managed the the day to day stress and work pressures of those roles? <laughs> um, I think broad shoulders and a sense of humour are a key uh, key attribute for risk and compliance professionals. 
Um, I think another thing, and it's not always worked for me at certain times in my career, there's been real pressure points, is um, an ability to keep things in perspective. So um, you've got to have some balance in your life, um, you know, something outside of work that you're passionate about, um, whether it's a hobby or a sport or uh, it comes from, you know, having good friends um, who can who can provide some perspective for you. Um, that's been really important for me um, uh, in, in my life. And then obviously, you know, family um, in whatever form that is, is, is um, you know, somewhere else, you know, that I've um, sort of drawn drawn strength from when I've needed to um, because there will there are times when you know the frustration levels are high or you feel as though you're not you know you're not getting your message through or um, you know the sheer workload is just overwhelming um, and so uh, yes having that that capacity to give yourself time to breathe give yourself time to gain fresh perspective um, I think is, is is the only way well it's been the way for me at least that I've managed to um, uh, take you know, release the work pressure and stress. And I think it's really important in the current environment, isn't it, with the just the level of, uh, you know, pressure that the three lines of defence are under in the Australian market and how many hours people are working, are you know, to, trying to get on top of uh, the regulations and the remediation projects, et cetera. Absolutely, absolutely. What about your passions outside of work? Well, I've got a few of them. <laughs> I've um, just moved. Um, I've moved to some acreage um, a little bit further out of Sydney. So I've got a, a new property to try and renovate alongside my husband. Um, I've got a new grandchild. Um, so that, that's very exciting. And um, the other, my other um, personal passion is I, I have a horse. And so I think I mentioned earlier that I'd always been mad about horses, but Never actually um, uh, had uh, anybody else in the family who was equestrian-minded. So um, it's taken me a long while, but I finally got to the point about six years ago where I, I bought a horse. And so um, one of the things for me is uh, trying to progress from the very baby entry levels of uh, dressage by learning from those who are far more experienced than I am. And um, for me, um, you know, he, the horse provides me with a complete mental break um, because when I ride, there's only one place that you can uh, you can focus, and that's um, sort of absolutely in the moment, stride by stride. So, um, they're they're sort of passions outside of work. So it's almost like a form of meditation. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, perhaps for some people they'd see it as an extreme form of meditation, but yes, for me, absolutely, you're right. You've hit the nail on the head. Julian, thank you so much for providing a fantastic insight into your career journey, uh, leadership, mentoring, and providing your thoughts around dealing with the level of regulatory change and the skills needed now and in the future for risk and compliance professionals. Thanks, Mark. It's a pleasure and thanks for having me. Thanks, Julian. Thanks for listening to the show. We encourage you to subscribe and feel free to share, rate us and leave a review. If there's anything you'd specifically like us to cover, email us at markenticott at bowenpartners.com. Thank you.